It's said that Hermes, messenger of the gods, instructed primitive peoples in the arts and sciences of culture, giving birth to humanity as we now know it. From the Hermetic perspective, everything is connected by core principles that are seamlessly woven into the holographic and fractal nature of reality. My job is to expose those Hermetic principles to modern people and to inspire an alchemical renaissance so we can collectively integrate them with terrestrial arts and sciences for a more beautiful and sustainable human experience. My name is Phoenix Aurelius. I'm the founder of Alchemiculture, which is a perennial philosophy that incorporates hermetic and alchemical principles into every aspect of human culture, the arts, the sciences, and our relationship with nature and natural resources. Join me as we actively weave hermeticism back into our social fabric. Are you looking for the highest quality herbal supplements and remedies for your home apothecary? Or maybe you're looking to take your spellcraft, magical workings, or offerings to the next level. Whatever your reasons might be, we have hundreds of herbal spagyric items available, and every purchase supports our work and helps bring spagyria into the light of the modern world. Here at the Phoenix Aurelius Research Academy, we produce dozens and dozens of items of spagyric pharmacopoeia each year, even though we only need a few samples for our research purposes. So the remaining quantities are available to the public in our online spagyric apothecary. Only the highest quality natural, organic, biodynamic, and ethically wildcrafted materials go into our products, and every purchase you make helps fund our research. As an Alchemiculture podcast listener, you can get your hands on our professionally crafted small batch spagyric products for 15% off using coupon code LISTEN15. So go ahead and browse our enormous selection of products and get yourself something new or pick up one of your favorite products today. Visit phoenixaurelius.org slash apothecary and enter coupon code LISTEN15 to take 15% off your entire order. And thanks in advance for supporting our research. All right, everybody. I'm your host, Phoenix Aurelius. Thank you for joining us for this Alchemiculture episode. Today, we are here with one of my favorite people. This is Crow777 from crow777radio.com. We're chatting with Crow today. And, uh, you know, for those of you who don't know, I had been doing spagyric work for a very long time and struggling to even make ends meet, mostly dabbling around in the cannabis industry and teaching people and you know, things, things were very tough as an alchemist. And then uh, I got invited onto Crow 777 Radio. I think that was December of 2017. And things, maybe it was December of 2018, and things absolutely blew up. Um, so a large part of why you're hearing me today and why Phoenix Aurelius is even kind of well known is actually because of this man. So I'm excited to have him on my show. And uh, I've always had a bunch of questions for him that usually aren't very easy to discern by listening to all the different episodes that he has, because he's always interviewing other people. And even though other people have definitely had him on their show, uh, there's a bunch of different talking points that I had that I thought would be very fun today. So I am pleased to uh, welcome Crow to the show. How's it going, brother? Hey, man, thanks so much for having me on, Phoenix. It's good to be back. It's been a while since we've been together. Um, I'm hoping we can build bridges out to everyone. On my podcast, Phoenix, one of the big problems is the whole world is changing. People have new points of view, and a lot of people are having trouble meeting in the middle, uh, leaving old ideas behind, starting new ideas. And I think that's a huge problem and a huge mistake. Um, I always refer to it as throwing the baby out with the bathwater. My goal is to join 
bring together as many different points of view as I can, because we all need to be together in the world that's shaping up here. Man, I think that that's absolutely beautifully said. And that's one of my observations too. Uh, you know, it, it seems like a moderate stance these days is more looked at as, <laughs> as being crazier and crazier than it ever has in the past. There's these very, very polar extremes and such division among people. That's one of the things I really admire about you, Crow, is that, you know, you're always just trying to take a look at what the, the truth might be, the most objective truth might be and expose it. And I've, I'm always somewhat confused as to how some of your most ardent followers uh, are able to attack certain people that you have on your shows when they present information that may not go along with their, their belief systems and so on and so forth. And it's not just unique to your show either. It's just that, um, you know, the people, like you said, are, are highly divisive these days. I, so very interesting. I think, I think what I find, Phoenix, um, I, I guess you could refer to them as ardent followers, but anyone who's been with me for a long time knows that one of the Eastern philosophies that I hold in my heart and I live in my life is the middle way. And that's your idea of moderation, being a moderate person. Um, and it is true. It's out of fashion. Everything is extreme right now, but I, I don't care. I will go the middle way uh, because it's right. And I know that it's right. I mean, even the Buddha gave examples with uh, a musical instrument. If that string is too taut, it will break. If it's too slack, it will not play. There's nature showing you the importance of getting it just right down the middle, moderation. Um, yeah. And you can't argue with nature. From my point of view, there's no lie in nature. And if it teaches me something, I hold it tight. Yeah, man, you and I see eye to eye right there. So tell me a little bit, Crow, when did you actually start interviewing people? When did you create Crow777radio.com? All right. So on, I, I just launched a new website and I have a new private server. I'm walking away from all social media because I'm not down with censorship. We don't harm anyone. Uh, we state openly, vehemently that we value all life. Um, and nonetheless, the censorship follows. So I'm pulling away from social media platforms as anything more than just a way to say, hey, we're doing this now or whatever. Uh, having said that, uh, most people became familiar with me when I accidentally shot the lunar wave, which I did on the actual true equal day, equal night day in uh, September of 2012. Now, I was unimpressed with social media. I, I shot through my scope for a year and people kept saying, open YouTube, people got to see this. So I finally did. And when I posted in the fall, I think October maybe of 2013, uh, the floodgates blew open and I was instantly dragged on the world stage. And then people started calling to interview me. And I, I remember my wife and I still laugh about it. I said, honey, this guy just called me. Why would anyone want to interview me? Um, the world was changing, of course. And so what happened is I went on interviews and they ended up being some of the most popular shows on those platforms. And I thought to myself, well, I can do this and we can talk about things that matter. And we can talk about all these things that I've found that doesn't jive with what maybe NASA or some other place is saying. And that's how it all started. And it's become quite massive at this point. Wow, that's really cool. And I didn't, I didn't actually realize that that's kind of how it started. And at what point did you start to kind of team up with Jason Lincoln? So... Jason was aware of me and he had contacted me. I think it was episode 27. Uh, I'd had him on. I invited him on to do a reverse interview. So he came on my show to interview me on the things he thought 
people would be interested in. And the moment I met Jason, I'm a very good judge of people, human beings. And I knew from the get-go that he didn't have maliciousness in him. He was 10 years younger than me and I couldn't fool him that easy. He could keep up with me and he's a good speaker and he's a good soul. So by episode 27, I picked up the phone one day. I said, how about you just come on board and be the co-host? I I think that's episode 27. Wow. Wow. That's cool. So you guys have been at it together from almost the very beginning. Uh, not far. I was maybe a year in because I didn't release on a regu- regular schedule. And when you're by yourself speaking for two hours, um, you, you become very calm. I didn't have a lot of guests either. Um, so was, a lot of it was just me speaking about the things that I thought were going to come to pass, which now people go back to those old shows and they say, how did you know? What's ironic <laughs> is the about page on my new website was written in 2013. Um, I do have a degree in internet technology, though I don't, I, I'm not really a technical person. That's not what's important to me. Um, but in that about page, it's all about where I knew social media was going and where free speech was going to die. And so at that way, way back, I launched my website and I kept telling everyone around me, man, you better get your own website. Um, and, you know, maybe for someone like you, um, depending on what you choose to do, uh, maybe they won't take umbrage. But I would point out, go ahead and accidentally say cure or something and get the ire of the pharmaceuticals and they'll be down on you like a ton of bricks. Yeah. And this is the problem. How come we can't have a conversation about natural, let's just say remedies? Maybe we can agree. Is that the right word? Remedy? Sure, sure. That's a okay. great word to use. So we'll say remedy. And, and you know, from my point of view, nature gives us everything we've ever had and everything we will ever need. And that's why I reached out to you in the beginning, because I don't know a lot of people, very many at all in the whole world. And I've got a lot of reach now that do what you do at the level that you do it. And that's important to me. And so I kept telling people, get your own website learn how to do this so that you can maintain speech that matters in this world because if the powers that be get their way a couple years from now we'll be in a very different place yeah well and that's that's just as true today even perhaps even more true today than was in 2013 so you know good foresight and just watching the patterns of how progressive censorship has constantly encroached on uh, freedom of speech. And what's, you know, the, the tricky thing about that that I find is that because these corporations have, like YouTube, for instance, have put in, uh, you know, their, their independent businesses, they have the right to refuse service to anybody that they want. And that's how they're getting away with this type of censorship. Whereas realistically, their service has become so unanimous all the way across the world that it's almost like a global platform uh, the public the, forum. Yeah, public forum. And so there's this really fine, tricky line because, you know, I do have to agree on one hand that businesses have the right to refuse service to anybody that they want. That's something that as a business owner myself, I may not want to serve somebody or, you know, deal with them or something for one reason or another. I want to be able to have that right. And I think that that's an inherent right that all businesses should have. But on the other hand, when you create something that is actually so large and so depended upon by so many people, 
does it have the same status as say like a small or a local business to be able to do those things? It's no a very way. tricky question. So, Well, for, for me, Phoenix, you know me, man, I, I don't fall down in the middle um, of a question without having an answer very often. The truth of it is, is that they actually called that platform a public forum at first, which forced them to observe free speech rules. They have since changed, but we all know what's going on here. You want to go ahead and question what caused 2020 you're going to get censored what's that about and so there's no, this is indefensible because truly in the digital age the new public forum is me speaking anywhere in the world to anybody um, and they announced when they launched this that it was the new public forum yeah. what we've seen is a sleight of hand here and i'm not down with it but i am with you um, i don't think it will stand forever unless we go into a slave period um, then they'll get away with it for some period of time. But we're coming into Aquarius here, man. Uh, yeah. The age of air and the age of air and the idea of motherly love are going to overarch everything we do. And motherly love is not going to tolerate. And, and motherly love is not an institution or a corporation. It, it's a natural facet of this natural world. And I don't care who you are, man. You want to stop the tide from coming in? Good luck. Maybe you'll do it for a day, but the tide's coming in. Um, yes. that's the way I view it yeah 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 I, I'm right there with you actually so you know sometimes things have to get worse before they get better hopefully it doesn't get too much worse but even if it does it it's a learning opportunity for people and uh yeah I can see lots of those types of uh events on the horizon in many different uh sectors of everyday life these days so you know one question I've got for you Crow is you know, first of all, uh, what episode are you on right now with your Crow 777 interviews? Uh, let me actually click over. I'm on 300 and I'm going to uh, release 312.5, which is only an hour episode uh, tomorrow. Wow. Uh, what happened is on 311 for your audience members that know how to count the way our world changed here in the United States. That night I stayed up late past midnight writing a blog saying remember that thing we were saying was coming it's here it's out in the open it's here at that point i picked up the phone i said jason we're doubling down um to produce a show at the level we do one show a week takes seven days a week all the time we doubled it and then we tripled it so basically we're producing two crow triple seven radio shows well-researched shows um a week and then what we did is Jason on his Secrets of Saturn platform on YouTube, uh, I almost every week join them for a live stream. So you're looking at eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 12 shows a month um, wow. since this happened. Uh, we, we're, we're pushing all we can to try to introduce mostly what I consider to be common sense back into the world. Yeah, man, that, that's a lot of interviews, man. Like I, you know, doing all the other things that I do here in the lab and, you know, we've got a premium content thing coming up and, you know, uh, all of my IDF work and all these other things. It's really been difficult even just to sneak, you know, one show in every week or two, actually. So, right. you know, for me, it's really crazy to think about actually doing 12 shows. That's that's definitely a full time gig. And, you know, Jason, uh, are you helping also with Secrets of Saturn? Um, that the way this works is when I met Jason, he was a manager at Guitar Center and he hated every breath. 
Um, luckily, he got out of there before mm -hmm. all this happened because I don't know what he would have done. I imagine he would have sure. walked away. Um, so when he came on my show, uh, everything changed to what he wanted to be doing. He was closer to doing it. He wants to do music. He's a very talented musician, singer, guitarist. He's an audio engineer. Um, Rose, who is his girlfriend, uh, the three of us run this. And without Rose, this train would fall off the tracks in a week. So mm -hmm. the way it works is he went from living one way to living a whole nother way. He actually moved recently and him and Rose moved to a new wow. place. Um, so he's, I think, much closer to his dream. So what I do is I say Crow Triple Seven, I built and we do this thing together and everything else, you know, you, you build. And if I can help you, I will. Um, he want, as an example, I'm not much of a, a selling guy. Um, everyone kept asking for t-shirts. Well, I, I didn't really want to do that. I've done that before. And so Jason and Rose run, run the t-shirt shirt side of things. But the, the real big thing was Jason kept saying to me, Crow, let's make a full feature length movie on all the scope work you did. And I said, I don't want to be famous. I've done everything I can in the world to not be the focal point of these ideas that I think are important. I want the ideas to be the focal point. He kept coming back. I kept saying no. Then one day he said, you know, Crow, you're alive and someday you're going to die and people are going to say the damnedest things about all your work, isn't it? Wouldn't it be wise to get it all on film straight from your mouth? And I realized all at once he's right. So mm -hmm. I sat my butt down with an HD camera jammed in my face for two hours. And we made a full length feature film called Shoot the Moon, which streams on Vimeo On Demand. Um, we give it away to recurring members of Crow777radio.com, but I, I think Jason has it at like seven bucks. But here's the, here's the thing. We finished it in 2019, we released it. No one would touch it with a 10 foot pole. Um, and we thought, nope, world's not ready for these ideas. And then all of a sudden, a couple big film festivals picked it up. And then more and more, as it stands now, Jason has received eight laurels, eight awards for the film. And the last one was from Jaipur, India, because, of course, I give a nod to the Vedics, who knew so much so, much so long ago um, that the Western world tries to act like it's just crazy people with funny headgear that don't know a thing. I told the truth. No, they know a lot of things. And they they told us centuries ago the truth. Um, so the last laurel on, on the movie Shoot the, the Moon came from Jaipur, India. And I was proud of that one above all others. Wow, that's really cool, man. And we'll, we'll actually uh, talk about that here in just a minute. But one of the things that I'm really curious about is, you know, uh, 312 basically episodes in, how has it changed your own views and beliefs to be uh, exposed to so many different viewpoints and so many different uh, ideas? you've got to learn how to conduct yourself so that you're not separating people. And that becomes tricky as you and I personally know behind yeah. the scenes, what I'm referring to. Yeah. Um, but I have an operating idea that is not because I want it to be that it's because it has to be that I know, I know how to bring common sense. And I know to say, I don't know when I don't know. Um, but I do know how to apply common sense. And in this age, maybe since the year 2000, we've witnessed human consciousness expanding. And in that expansion, you get to a point where you know damn well the ring of truth is not in a thing. You may not know everything you want to know about it, and that's almost always the case, but you know there's no ring of truth. And what nature taught me 
is when there's no ring of truth, there's no foundation. And when there's no foundation, it's poppycock. And you don't need to know anything more. Just keep traveling on your road. So what I have done is brought to bear a sense of smell that is developed with the uplifting of human consciousness and a moral rectitude based in common sense. And that's how I operate through all of it. Um, and the main thing is don't ever down another person. You, you know, I see so many people, it's like, it's like me coming on the air and saying, you know what, I don't like kids. I wish there were never any kids. I hate kids forgetting <laughs> that I was a kid. It yeah. makes no sense. And it reminds me of the story of the Buddha. And I've said this a lot of times. He said, people are like lotuses. Some of them are all the way down in the mud and the muck. Some of them have grown away from the mud, but they're underwater. Some are right below the surface of the water and some have poked out the top and they're perfect, pure, spotless blossoms. Well, that spotless blossom cannot look down into the mud and say, hey, you mud lotus, get the hell out of that mud. Come up here where I am. It doesn't work that way. We, we get where we're going as we can. And if you forget that, then you start to marginalize people you have no right to marginalize. And these are important things for me to remember, as you pointed out, because I speak to so many different people. And the points of view are, particularly where we are now, are sometimes quite a distance from what used to be acceptable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, man, that's a beautiful uh, allegory and way to bring in you know, Buddhist cosmology and just into the picture, because it, it really is one of those things, uh, you know, anytime that you're exposing different viewpoints, whether you agree or don't agree, that doesn't really matter. And realistically, you know, always having that the perspective that, you know, as far as I've come, I have made this journey and it's been a slow, natural progression. And uh, there are others that are in, in different stages of the progression. You can't call a lotus flower above water. It takes time for it to grow. So that, there that it is absolutely beautiful. There, there it is. And there's at no time can, can the flower look down into the mud and demand that that person wallowing uh, just hurry the hell up and get on the ladder. Just go ahead and climb up where I am. It doesn't work that way. It's like telling a baby you need to be a teenager tomorrow. That's not how nature does it. Yeah, exactly. It defies the laws of nature. So very good. So, you know, one of the things that um, constantly both you and I and many others are, are up against today are the concept of uh, mainstream news. So in your own personal opinion, what do you think the, the main problem or problems are with uh, mainstream news outlets today? This is the method that I employ, and I alluded to it. A lot of times I refer to it as I can smell something's burning in the kitchen. No one can tell me when I smell that smell as an allegory that something is not burning. I know damn well, it's like someone trying to tell me the sky is green. Sorry, I'm not, I don't have time to talk to you. I know the sky is not green, but it doesn't tell me everything, but it tells me enough because then what I know is the ring of truth is absent. The foundation is absent and anything of value, anything that will last the test of time must have a foundation and it must be built on truth. If you do not have a sound, true foundation, then you're just a blip on the radar and what you're doing may matter infinitesimally for a very small period of time. What the news is, is a place that has showed us that not only will it lie regularly, but some of the lies will be so immense as to have proved it has no, no regard for living men and women. So at that point, I no longer have time or will I ever 
take seriously one word. I don't even care if I'm listening to the new the, the weather. They might even tell me the truth. It's going to be sunny today. Doesn't matter. I know who you are, black box. Um, <laughs> I know where you come from. I know your foundation and you have no spot in my vision. You have no place in my line. And that's because I was granted at the zygote free will and the divine spark. And that's what most of this is about. We need to remember that human beings are special. This whole place is here because of us. We are the guardians. We are everything, the apex of this place. And we will not cease to be. The only reason this place is here is because we have to get to an outcome. And this is hardship and necessity as it is right now. But you can look back through history. The hardest times have always shown the biggest forward movement and impressive feats that's where we are point is is the news wants me to believe that we could all be gone tomorrow well poppycock news i know who you are i know the fear that you're spreading i know the lies that you convey every day so what i do is i lock them out they're not part of what i find value in in this world i don't have time for liars yeah absolutely man i think that that's something that you know, definitely needs to be taken a look at by the majority of people because I, you know, I see people who will listen to a lot of alternative uh, material and still watch the nightly news every night. And, um, you know, what I find is so interesting is that the repetition of particular narratives through mainstream sources, it's really for anybody who studied neuro-linguistic programming or other things like that, it, it's just so obvious, like, exactly what mechanisms are being used in order to be able to perpetuate a particular narrative and to keep kind of more or less blinders on people. And even when you're exposed to alternative data, folks like us, we're not using neuro-linguistic programming to be able to drive through a narrative. We're just trying to expose certain ideas or, or perspectives and allow people to make up their own minds. And you know, I guess in my own perspective, I think that there's really two things that might be wrong with mainstream news sources today. One is that it's fueled by a bottom line. Basically, they need to sell things. And since, since time immemorial, the main thing that sells is going to be fear. I'm not sure <laughs> exactly why that is or what the link between money and fear is. I have many theories on that. But uh, anytime that you put fear into the mix, people love it. I mean, just take a look at the horror uh, movie industry today and uh, suspense and thrillers and you know novels long before movies were ever created and stuff like that so that that's one main thing and then the second thing is the perpetuation of particular narratives that fit the agenda of those who are in that financing circle of those uh, mainstream sources I think that those two things really for me kind of epitomize uh, the, the majority of the problem with those sources. And it's funny how, how Mockingbird-like uh, all of those different sources are when you take a look behind the scenes and just follow the monetary trail, how you can see exactly why those messages are, are kind of like an echo chamber, so. Well, the, I, I pointed out, you know, you and I lived in a world where money was king. We've come through that now. Yeah. Data is now king. And what I will point out is in the same way that I wrote my about page saying censorship is going to get out of hand here, it's not because I could look and assess anything. It's because the common sense foundational things that I knew don't lie to me. 
there is no lie in nature. If you don't know what to do and you can't find truth, walk out into the field next to your house and go sit under a tree because yeah. everything you pick up from that point forward is the truth. And it's not questionable. Um, and so what, what I found is that I knew corporation never knows how to sit still. It could find the apex operating place where everything is the best it could possibly be. And yet no one in that corporation is going to say, we've done it, guys. We've reached the pinnacle. We're serving the people and making the money. We've got all this. They're going to keep going every single time. And they will go too far every single time until someone reels them back. But yeah. in terms of the news, the biggest problem we have in our world is very few people are unaware, uh, unaware that at the end of 2019, I think something like 250 big major multinational CEOs were swapped out all at once. Yeah. And then Jason and I have done programs. I think Jason feels like we're closer to five corporations that own almost everything. I think we're down to two. And I think those two are about to merge into one. Money isn't the driving force anymore, which is proven by 2020, where what they did was they made it difficult for as many as they can to have money or to work to get money. But the central banks were printing money at a rate that's never been seen in the world. And so the inflation's going to follow, which is just another way to take the value out of your money. Yeah. So what we find is the the... The part that money plays in the average life now is it's hard to get. But what's worse is it's about to be devalued either by hyperinflation or a reset or Lord knows. I could guess all day long, but we know it's coming on some level. The people who have the money just print it. Central banks sit down at a computer, they tap a keyboard and they loan it in interest, creating debt at the outset. Yeah. So this is another thing about the evening news. The evening news will tell you, oh, my God, the national debt we've got. No, I'm sorry. You guys are lying. If, if someone paid off the national debt, our fiat currency system would collapse the same day. The truth is, is that it's built on debt. And every year there has to be more debt, which could also be part of the reason 2020 happened. They couldn't wring any more blood out of the turnip. There was no more debt to collect. Um, and so we know these things, but the real problem is monopoly. And the real, real problem is central banking, um, who have always had a monopoly and just been able to hide it. And they just don't care anymore. You know, on 9-11, they poked their face out in the light of day. And on 3-11 in 2020, they jumped out of their little hole and stood there and said, good luck trying to stop us. Yeah, yeah. It's become a very clear technocracy these days. So. Yes. Well, you know, I don't want to get too far sidetracked from some of this because it all ties into uh, our next topics. But, you know, you talked about shooting the moon earlier, and I want to talk a little bit more about that. Um, let's go before that documentary. I want to talk about what got you into amateur telescope observation in the first place. Like, how did you get into that? So when I was very young, um, I was always into a National Geographic by the way, that was a very different magazine in those times. Yes. I had Ranger Rick and I had all these and I'd always in the back see these little ads for these weird little pot belly telescopes. And I always wanted one. But my parents were school teachers. We didn't get a color TV till the late 80s. Um, so I went my life. I did what I did. I went into the Marine Corps during the first Gulf War. And when I got back out, I said, you know what? I'm getting older and. I just had all this life locked up as a Marine, basically, because you can't do what you want. You're serving, basically. Yeah. You've agreed to serve. 
And I said, I'm going to go into debt like I never have. So I went looking for a scope and I did go into debt. I, I went into debt $2,500. I'd never in, in the mid eighties, I had never, or the mid nineties, I'd never spent money like that on anything but a car. And I got a fully robotic eight inch Schmidt cast grain back when they were still built in America and quality tools. And that's where it started. And then life went on again and I moved around coast to coast, went back to school, got a degree. And right around 2006, I couldn't take it anymore. The corporate life that I was living, I was my own boss, but I was working with corporations. And then it all came crashing down around 07 or 08. And I said, I don't care. I will never work for another corporation. I don't care if I've got to eat rice the left rest of my life. I want to go plug in my telescope. And that's where it started. And my wife and I had no idea how we were paying rent or where our food was going to come from. And I turned on a camera and I filmed night and day uh, for half a decade. So that's how all that happened. Wow, that's really cool. I didn't realize that it was like one of those life-changing moments for you. Uh, you know, I, of course, I didn't know what the story is, but I think I just kind of assumed that it was like, oh yeah, it was just kind of a hobby or something like that. But you, you actually made a decision like, to hell with this corporate life. I'm actually doing this. So you followed your passion completely all the way with this. Well, you, you, you know, it's, it's a little weird. You know, as I look back, yeah, man, there's fear. You don't know how you're going to pay your rent. And the cost of everything was starting to skyrocket at the point I walked because we were already in the new millennium. But the truth yeah. is, is yeah, you're in the middle of the ocean, but I knew how to swim. So should I have been so afraid to let go of the life preserver? And the truth is, is those that muster up the courage to let go in the long run, they'll look back and the majority will be happy for having done it. Um, but yeah, it's in the world that we live in, it, we have to get currency to have food, to have a place to live. So our natural rights as living beings have been monetized. And I couldn't take it anymore. Um, and in the middle of that, by the way, um, my father got cancer. So I dropped everything, came back here um, and he passed away. I ended up in San Diego and then that all happened. Well, I think it was in 2012 on the super moon of May. I hadn't had the scope out in so long and I invented invited the family over and we were looking at the super moon and my nephew said, holy smokes, there's a black triangle going across the moon or in front of the moon. And, and I said, well, I'll never see anything like that. Well, we sat for three hours or more watching black triangle after black triangle, even formations of them as the moon apparently moves across the sky from our vantage point. And that's really what started it. The next morning I went out and I got the things I needed to put a camera on the scope. And I thought I'll film a million years. I'll never catch anything like that, but it did not take long. And then of course, from May to September, uh, that's when I shot accidentally the 2012 lunar wave, which is the best example we have, I think. Yeah, yeah, that that's really fascinating because actually until I watched Shoot the Moon, I was completely unaware that there were, you know, triangular uh, little anomalies that would pass between myself and the, and the moon as well. And uh, I watched that and I thought, Jesus, what, what the hell is that? I, I think I even wrote you an email being like, what do you what do you think those are so let's talk about that what do you think that those are because uh, most people who have seen shoot the moon especially a lot of critics will say well those are satellites of course that are coming between 
you and the moon, but it seems like they, they happen at such regular intervals. And I'm not actually sure, are there enough satellites in space, according to, you know, monetary accounts and other things like this that could possibly account for that? And Well, we can, I can prove that they're in our atmosphere and they're human tech. Um, you want to make an alien claim, you better have some evidence and there is no evidence. So that leaves human tech. And I did, well, there's a whole story behind this. So look, years and years ago, um, when I first started putting up videos, Google would tell us if you did a search for how many satellites there are, 20 to 30,000 with like, I don't know, 10,000 broken. Go search right now. It'll be like 1,200. Um, it's just a shell game. They just make some stuff up and nowhere, even back then, you couldn't get a good breakdown. And so I had tools like Stellarium. And so I wanted to film these satellites because when I started, I thought, yeah, these are satellites. And then I found out where the technology for Stellarium to drive the satellites and that it's not even accurate. And so I was at a point where if I film something within 15 minutes of a reported satellite going across the moon, I'll call it a satellite. And then I started thinking, well, wait a minute. If the trajectory is off, by the way, we're told this all works slightly over days and days and days, that thing would be so far away from where it's supposed to be, it's not even funny. If the timing was off, the same is true. So I looked up the, I don't know, Mount Apache or whatever the hell the, you know, the big mountain, hollow mountain there is where the technology is claimed to come from. And they said flat out, this is not accurate. And that's when I zeroed in. So then I started to get common sense as I learned how to think. And I realized, can I really see something as big as a car, three, four, 11,000 miles away, even 300 miles away? And that's where it started. So one day I was sitting there minding my own business. Well, kind of telling everyone that this is all human <laughs> tech in, in our atmosphere and that nothing leaves our atmosphere, which I learned from the old alchemists. Yeah. Um, and so the Huffington Report, of course, just takes your clips because they're news and they can get away with it because they call themselves news, which they're not news. But anyhow, they get an FBI expert, which I have no idea why an FBI guy knows anything about telescopes or space. And they get the head of MUFON. And this is the straw that broke the camel's back. They said this crow character doesn't understand how his equipment works. And what he's filmed here in this clip we ripped off from him and ran in the Huffington Post for free is a satellite in half geosynchronous orbit. Well, I know their game. I grew up learning everything NASA said. That means half geosync is 11,000 miles because geosync would be 22,000. Right. And so I went to a scope shop, one of the biggest left in the country. And there was this genius young man there that is an optics expert like I have never seen. And I said, look, these dudes are beating me up. They're not telling the truth. Help me calculate <clears throat> for the camera that I'm using, both stills and video, because the resolution is different between the two. For the exact telescope, I have everything so we can calculate the value of a pixel at, say, 11,000 miles. And we did it. As a matter of fact, we later did it with every scope. This is all in Shoot the Moon, by the way. Yeah. And what I found was that if the Huffington Post and all their infinite wisdom was right, the object I shot would be five times the size of the supposed fake ISS. And what I learned was that this has to be in, in our atmosphere. And then I started going down the road. Um, if I got a hundred miles away on a mountaintop and I had a million candle power light, could I see it from a hundred miles away? Of course, there's atmosphere down here. So it's a little different, but as I began to reason it out and put into place what the optics expert went, 
all of a sudden with the old alchemy treaties and that I'd been reading and all these things, they were telling me the truth. You do not leave this. You remember the flamel woodcut with the little dude poking his head out of our atmosphere to see what's out in space? Yeah, yeah, that's the vision of the prophet Ezekiel. There it is, the visit. Okay, so that's a flamel woodcut. Anyway, they were telling us the truth. You do not leave our so-called atmosphere. You do not go through the firmament with matter, not with your body, not with a spaceship. Um, you might do it in meditation. You might do it in visionary states. You might do it as an advanced alchemist doing things that alchemists have done since Lord knows the beginning of time. But I am convinced that there is a hard, fast barrier that the Bible refers to as a firmament. And actually, there's more, Phoenix. Um, if I had to rename what got called the lunar wave, I would call it a firmament wave. Because since that time, it's been filmed endless times in front of the moon. It's been mm -hmm. filmed a number of times in front of Jupiter. It's been filmed in front of Saturn, which tells me that it can be filmed anywhere in the sky, sufficiently backlit by a luminary big enough to give you the view. And so what I currently suspect is true because I can't prove it yet because I don't have Wonder Woman's invisible plane um, <laughs> is that it's a wave that's always double going through what we call the firmament. And I also suspect what I learned from old alchemy treaties is that is also true based on my work is that not only is there a firmament or a hard fast barrier, their space would be better defined as an ethereal liquid. So th those are my things that I work from um, constantly measuring and trying to get to a point where I can demonstrate it in some meaningful way. But there were men long before me, as you know, I know you do, because I know you've read um, Falconelli or any number of the old people yeah. who will tell you, no, the sun's not hot. <laughs> if the sun was hot, the closer you got to it, you'd burn up. It's not how it works. Um, you know, not too long ago, I was reading an alchemy, al alchemic treatise, which one of my followers, followers who's a builder is going to test. An alchemist claimed, they said all old ancient alchemists knew that if you went to the bottom of a well at noon, dead noon, so the sun's, you know, at apex and looked up, you would see stars. And I thought, really, how can that be? And so I mentioned it a few times on the show because I saw it written in three or four places. And now someone's going to go do it with a very deep hole and we'll see what's what. And so we'll learn were those alchemists speaking in riddles for people who know things or was this direct knowledge being transmitted? Uh, as you also know, a lot of what we read from alchemy takes high levels of knowing to even crack the levels of what's being told you. Yeah, well, you know, that's a really fascinating concept and we can talk about uh, aperture and other different uh, photographic technologies that allow us in broad daylight to be able to see stars as well. So it, it doesn't seem that big of a stretch that by altering the physical conditions even of the human eye and its state of observation that you would be able to see those things as well. So, you, you, know. Know, you know, Phoenix, I would go so far as to say the two things that cost us the most dearly that we temporarily lost is alchemy, specifically spagyrics, um, but alchemy because of the path that allows a living man or a woman to tread to get to be a higher human being, which used yeah. to walk this planet, the other thing is cymatics. Yeah. If it exists, it vibrates. And science made us forget this. And the idea of the things we're talking about directly relates to matter, doesn't it? Like, 
how come when I get if if the sun is hot, then why are all the mountaintops uh, under snow? There are plenty of alchemists that went at this. Now the mainstream is going to tell you, oh, there's no atmosphere and there's no this, and but what they're basically saying is there's less matter, right? So the energy from the sun is interacting with less matter. And when I'll tell you something, Phoenix, when I want to know things. I go before the modern edit, what I call the modern edit, which I mark, ironically, at 1911. Yeah. If I can get something written before 1911, I am so all in and such kind of a baby in diapers trying to catch up with what those guys were laying down back then. Um, but those older guys, they knew some things and they tried to preserve it and they tried to tell us. As a matter of fact, why do we have tarot cards? Tarot cards were meant to preserve what the Vatican was destroying wholesale. These ideas were important. So very smart individuals figured out ways to encode in something that seems like just a play, a play set, a play deck, very important ideas. Yeah, that's absolutely true. All of the archetypes of the entire Kabbalah are, are encrypted inside there of it is. Uh, it Paro. Is. And, you know, created primarily by the Rosicrucians uh, in France. Uh, they, they, were, they were really on top of things. You know, I think that that's a really important point too. And it, I think that it's really fascinating that you think that alchemy and cymatics are probably two of the biggest things that we have more or less lost in the modern age, because I would say that same thing. And I would even, maybe, maybe even with a different word, I have a very similar viewpoint that just understanding vibration uh, right. beyond just cymatics, because cymatics today, the science of cymatics tends to indicate uh, vibration and, and patterns in particular that, uh, like, for instance, if we put some sand on a vibrating plate and turn it to a particular hertz, what shape does the sand end up taking? And all of that is very fascinating. But I think that even beyond that, there's multidimensional different energies. And there, there's a lot of different scientists, uh, even in the modern day, who have proposed ideas like this that are able to uh, go from waveform into more solid matter. Uh, it, for me, as an allegory, as an alchemist, one of the things that I look at that as, is, as being a holographic and fractal concept, is that when I excite water with heat, that water vaporizes, and it actually travels by waveform as air or as wind up through my distillation system until it hits either a height or a, an environment that causes it to condense. And so literally we start with matter, we excite it through heat or the archetype of fire, and then it's able eventually through either distance away from the heat or through, like I said, an environment like a condenser to be able to condense back into matter again. And uh, the emerald- the microcosm, you're, you're describing the microcosm, right, Phoenix? So basically yeah. I could take what you just told me and understand, you know what, uh, water evaporates from this pond and then in a day or two it rains or whatever. Yeah. Um, that's how I know um, that my ideas at least are sound until they can be proven outright that basically we're li living in an alchemist's hermetically sealed blast. That's the world as, as I view it. And what you just described could be easily analogized to there's a pond, it's morning, it's evaporating. Oh, later in the day, it rained. Um, yep. You have made that microcosm verbatim identical. Um, but to get back to the cymatics, one thing that we have a problem with, and you pointed it out, you put the sand on a plate, you vibrate it. Oh, look, there's pretty, pretty shapes. That's what our minds are thinking these days. No take a closer look. What you just witnessed was form created out of thin air. 
Yeah. Um, and when you begin to understand what I just said, then you can start to go down the deeper paths that I know you have to go down because you understand that every single thing, like, like to this day, you can find sci scientific writings that say, well, cold is just the lack of heat. The alchemists never would have written that. No, they no. would have pointed out that there's a, a vib vibratory difference. They would have illustrated why there's a difference between cold and heat. And still all the way up into the new millennium, here we are. Well, cold is the absence of heat. No, these, these are erroneous ways of thinking about our world. And it's the same problem when we see someone with colored sand make a beautiful flower medallion using vibration because we're in diapers, we're missing the point. What you're witnessing yeah. there is a miracle, nothing short of a miracle. Um, and to put it into context, all those open areas where there is no sand, that is where the currents are vibrating in whirls and eddies and circular motions. Where the sand is, is where less movement and vibration is going on. But in fact, yes. for the same reason, and I know you know this, the old alchemist goes out in the garden, I've got this sick person. Well, I know what colors go to the zodiac. I know how the zodiac corresponds to the body. Hey, look, there's a blue flower. Hmm. This blue flower has 12 petals already. He knew magnetic or electric, polarity, feminine or masculine, and something about vibration rate, which is illustrated verbatim in a cymatic shape made on a flat plate. How did that, how did that many petals get on the flower? And this is where people like you, I assume, are working back to uh, having almost damn near nothing to go on except the basis that you work with. But we'll get back. I mean, what do you think? Won't we? We'll get back. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it, already there's there's like uh, Matthew Wood Institute of Herbalism. There's uh, one of my colleagues, Sage Popham's uh, School of Evolutionary Herbalism. There's lots of different places are teaching these types of energetics based on Paracelsus' uh, Doctrine of Signatures again. And you would be surprised just within the scope of, of herbalism today, how many people are, are reaching back to the spagyric model they're reaching back to the renaissance models to be able to find what herbs do what because there's been so much censorship since yep. like you said yep. about 1911 in rockefeller medicine of how herbs interact and it's always been taught you know to us especially our entire generation and even one or two generations back like my father just turned 74 and his entire generation the whole motto was better living through chemistry and they separated the entire scope of everything that had been discovered before them from this new chemical age of let's use chemistry to be able to synthesize molecules because it's, it's faster, it's cheaper, it's more effective and blah, 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 blah. And it's not the same. It's not it's, the same. And it's not the same. The spirit of what they're creating is, is dead. The spirit yeah. of what they're creating does not have the spark of life, but, but Phoenix, let's, let's make sure we let people understand Chemistry does not exist without the true, pure, proven foundation called spagyrics. It does not exist. And what they did is they systematically removed the creator, the, the truth of nature into a lab. And I don't know, for my part, Phoenix, they've hit the wall. They have to go back now. They can't go any further. And not only that, um, you and I both know. Um, it, it's why I took such an interest in you. The hope in what you do as a living man doing spagyrics and alchemy, you are the future. You are what we have to get back to. You reaching a pinnacle of some sort 
is the world coming back online at a level where actual healthcare exists, where actual men and women going for that enlightenment idea exists. That's what is represented in my eyes in what you do. That's really cool to hear that reflection. That's really cool. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, this interview isn't about me, by the way, so I don't want to derail this uh, too, too far. But, you know, one of the things that I've always had to do, which is annoying to me, actually, but it's still the corpus of my work for the time that I'm in, is to be able to take all of these old ideas that have circulated for centuries, even millennia, and to be able to present them in a way that is actually congruent to modern scientific data and to be able to show the congruency and that they're saying the same thing through two entirely different lenses of observation. And somehow that is actually what has opened the door to so many different scientists in the modern age starting to accept like, oh, wow, this guy actually might know a little something about these herbs or this guy really knows like how to be able to create different forms of, of medicine. And I, I really see the work that, that's happening right now. And I'm, I'm by far not the only one who's doing this right now, but um, there's, there's a bunch of us who are trying to take spagyria and spagyric models of medicine and be able to show and bring it into the light of modern science. And spagyria was created even before the scientific revolution, you know? So we right. have so much catching up to do to be able to show it in the light of modern science so that people will inherently come to the decision. It's like, oh, well, whether we explain it the way that they did, you know, 200 to 4,000 years ago, or whether we explain it chemically, we're arriving at the same answers, arriving at the same same way of looking at things. And the only difference really between alchemy and chemistry is the state of observation of, of the, the uh, operator, so to speak. And, and, and it, creation and hypermaterialism, I would add. But, yeah. but you make such a critical point, and I know you're going to know what I'm about to say. There's a book from a man who's building the very bridge you're talking about. The book is called Spagyrics. The man has taken the Latin name Manfred Junius, and he is a chemist who's gone yeah. back to do alchemy and he tells everyone, look, folks reading my book, uh, the, 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 the chemists call this hydrogen. Here's the way the alchemist treated this. And he, he's building the exact bridge that you're referring to. And I'm with you. It's, it's critically important to show the science trained that there is a whole level of knowing that includes nature, that includes the creator, that includes the divine spark that is missing in chemistry. Um, you know, I, I always describe alchemy as the science that does what it does within the scope of what nature will allow, never overstepping the natural bounds laid down. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, it, there's, there was a, the very first slideshow, or it was kind of like a movie, so to speak, but very definitely the very first slideshow, which was done in woodblock print, was done by Michael Meyer in the 17th century. And uh, in that, one of those major slides was called Following in Nature's Footsteps. And for me, that has always been like the pinnacle motto of what guides my laboratory work. If I want to understand distillation, like we were talking about earlier, I have to take a look at the transpiration of trees. I have to take a look at the evaporation of bodies of water. I have to take a look at all of these things. I have to observe the way that nature does it and creates natural evaporation and condensation or transpiration and condensation in order to really understand how to do it effectively and how to biomimic that inside of my laboratory. And when you when you start to think of things like that, then 
you definitely get into more of a perennial you know, holographically and, and fractally true sense of, of things. And it puts you back in touch of working with nature and with nature cycles and using human ingenuity to perform biomimicry rather than to be separate from it. And that, again, that state of observation, looking at it from that angle and practicing from that angle really is what distinguishes uh, alchemy from chemistry. And most of my, most of the teachers that I've uh, worked with and have even learned from like Robert Allen Bartlett of uh, the Spagyricus School uh, or Spagyricus Institute, I guess it's called. Um, he's a, a trained chemist, an analytical chemist. Um, you know, Manfred Junius, again, a chemist and also an Ayurvedic practitioner. Uh, Important. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's very, very interesting stuff. So I would, I guess I would ask something, sorry for interrupting, but yeah, it, no worries. You know, with what you're doing is biomimicry the right word, because you learn the truth from nature, then the way it works was taught you by nature and you do it within the microcosm. To me, that's not mimicry. To me, that's, here's a blueprint of how nature works. I figured out the small part. Now I'm just simply applying nature in the microcosm to, to me, that's just operating by the creator's blueprint. Sure. I mean, you know, regardless of, of how you call it, you know, if, if you make a motion and I mimic that motion, is it mimicry, you know? So, you know, I guess, I guess we could debate semantics, but I'm, I'm right there with you, regardless of how we define it or the terminology that is used there. Um, I, I think that it's exactly the same. And yeah, I do happen to feel that there is a source of all creation. Uh, but I don't ever try and tie that into the philosophies uh, that I try and spread just because, it, again, that can be a source of division for so many people. And it's easier if you give somebody an experience and say, you know, explain this through your own filter of perception than it is to say, here's the filter of perception that you need to view this through. So that's well, been to my me, To me, part of the woes that we're coming through was science convincing us that hypermaterialism? it's what the Renaissance was about. The Renaissance has been misbuilt. What the Renaissance represents is hypermaterialism. It's the time when what the art meant quit mattering and they were still copying and not even at the same level, older art where there was no artist. It was what was the meaning in the art was the value and the beauty. Then if they could reproduce in the Renaissance something beautiful, the rock star artist who made it, there's your leaning into hypermaterialism. And so the problem is that science will have you believe anything it wants about how we came to be. Did a hurricane go through a junkyard and make a fully functioning jet engine? Is that how all this happened? <laughs> or is there something more? And until we get back to admitting that there has to be a higher force that put this perfect system together. We're not acknowledging the divine spark we all carry. And in alchemy, there's always this idea that, yeah, we're doing these things, but the real game here is, yeah, I can make these medicines or I can do these things with metals. I can do that to me. My living self can be put through these things I'm doing in a test tube and I can begin to reach for what the Bible would call heaven, what maybe Buddha would call enlightenment, what other places would call nirvana, this higher human state, which incidentally was built in glass and stone in places like Notre Dame, 
I did a show two weeks before they fried Notre Dame, telling everyone that they were removing the secrets built in glass and stone for the path of a man or a woman to reach a higher human state. And then they burned it two weeks later. I was not wrong. But wow. you see, the, the Vatican will come along and say, we built that. No, you didn't. You don't even know who the chief architect is. You <laughs> co-opted it. You took it over. Yeah. And then you lied about it. But the men who built that are so far beyond anything you can teach the world. And those are also the guys who made the tarot. Uh, the Marseille tarot being the important one. That's Everything right. French in alchemy is important to me because I think they did one of the best jobs of trying to hold on to so much important things. At one point, all that arcane knowledge was actually tied into the crown and to how things worked and to what was important. So uh, I wish I spoke French, I don't. Um, but the point is there are still places in the world that preserve this and those cathedrals uh, as an example, there always used to be a St. Christopher statue holding a baby Jesus in the opening where he first walked in. Those are all removed now. All of them. Yeah, which... one, of the, one of the bishops, when, when there was a bishop alive, they said, we're going to remove this. He said, over my dead body. You know what they did? They waited for him to die. And then yep. they drug the statue out and smashed it. You know, it's so funny because, and I use the term funny actually very loosely because it's less than funny in my opinion, but it's so strange to me that they would want to completely eliminate the entire heritage of the esoteric mysteries that were contained inside of the cathedrals in France. Um, I, I understand why there would be a sinister agenda uh, in order to be able to do that, because the less people are able to reach into their own humanity and understand their own potential, the easier they are to control. But still, that, that really was just such a pinnacle of mankind's achievements with the, even the way that they would use antimony in order to be able to create the particular reds inside of the, the stained glass there that as yep. light filtered through it, it completely altered the, you know, and you'd, you'd be inside of the, the cathedral receiving mass or whatever. It would enlighten you in such a particular way, the way that they shaped the arches and the domes and everything else inside of there, when they would have the chambers singing the specifically Gregorian chants, it would echo and resonate in such a way that it would create polyphonic tones that, again, would alter consciousness and so on and so forth. And so, you know, it, it just sucks to me that all of that is lost. But it does preserve in, in writing, especially through Fulcanelli's works. And it sucks that most people can't go there and see the same thing that Fulcanelli was seeing uh, to be able to show you that the entire mystery of the Philosopher's Stone and the, the creation of right. exalted matter and transformed matter was actually encrypted inside of the geometry, inside of the, the statuary, inside of the stained glass, all of it had very, very particular meaning for those who had eyes to see. And Every luckily, piece. luckily, we still have those writings, uh, especially Fulcanelli's piece, La Mystère des Cathédrales, or the, the Mysteries of the Cathedral, um, to be able to enlighten us as to what those were and what the significance was. And I think even just that one piece of writing people who get in the know and get in the flow of understanding what that symbology is will be capable of being able to recreate things like this in the future. And hopefully I, I it gets more integrated into our humanity as, uh, 
the technocracy ends up dying. People, you know, it's a fanciful thing right now, having advanced technology and thinking that you're oh so cool because you have this and that. that it's a novelty that's going to wear off. It's just like having the newest and coolest, you know, vehicle or whatever else that's out that, that people get caught up in, but eventually it loses its luster. And I think people will turn back to more perennial concepts here before long. Yeah, I think this age proves it. By the way, you speak French, I just noticed, um, but the dwellings of the philosophers, there's a, there's a few writings attributed to Falconelli. And by the way, people listening, you're going to see all these haters out there try to tell you that Falconelli is a fraud and he didn't exist because they can't prove who he was. That was the idea, because Falconelli was not the rock star. The ideas that he was trying to preserve are the rock star. Yeah. Um, and so, but to get back to it is there is no portion of places like Notre Dame. There is not a seam, a stone, a, all of it was put together at such a high level. Um, I know you and I know something of the Akashic record. If these things are true, we don't lose data here, but it is, it's the highest crime. And the reason, Phoenix, I'll tell you the reason, because people can control and slave out children but adults operating at adult level cannot be ruled. They become unruly. And those buildings were directly related for every living life. Not if you're a member, not if you have a million dollars in your bank account, not if you're titled, not if you're a landholder, if you're drawing breath, those ideas were there for you. And the people in, in control can't stand the idea of that because they think they're better or they've tried to convince themselves they're better and they want to replace the so-called god they want to be the gods here yeah it's almost the biblical story of the fallen where god says you guys are out because you're just no good you do you do bad things and so they say fine we'll take this place over and we'll become the gods here and again this reflects the loss of science not understanding the divine spark that we've all been granted and if you forget that i don't know I don't know how the work starts to get up into the areas that become damn near magical in their delivery. As I know you've read Paracelsus and, and Falconelli and the, sometimes when you read it, you, you just feel like a baby in diapers that doesn't even have <laughs> one safety pin off. I mean, that's the way I refer to myself. I'm trying to get these yeah. safety pins off my diapers, but uh, I will not be ruled by people who are engaged in these things. Um, and just by chance, actually, there is no chance, but by the run of things, I released two weeks before, or maybe three weeks before they fried Notre Dame, an episode on Notre Dame saying they were destroying the book in glass and stone. Um, and by the way, as you also well know, we can't even produce the glass coloring methods or many of the things in the modern age. We can't even do it. We don't even know how it was done. Yeah, well, uh, the, the scientists and the archaeologists that you hear about don't know how it's done. Anybody who works with making the glass of antimony will understand very easily how that uh, is actually able to be done, and they can even reproduce it on small scale. Uh, to be able to do it on such a large scale the way that they did really, really, really inquires, uh, requires a great deal of mastery of glass making and glass blowing and the, the environments and conditions because antimony, what's really unique about it when you turn it into a glass is it can turn into just about any color of the entire spectrum. You can get red, you can get yellow, you can get orange, you can get blues, you can even sometimes get purples. Wow. Uh, and I've, I've seen all of this in making glass of antimony myself. So 
uh, it's very interesting. And, and the conditions that you do it in, I mean, God, I've done it, you know, 10, 15, maybe even, you know, up to 20 times now. And every different color that you get is really unique. So the amount of times that somebody would have to go through this and have an in-depth knowledge about how to be able to temper these very particular colors, uh, you, you have to have a great deal of familiarity with that. So yeah, it, it's, it's skillful for sure. Well, well let, me re, let me restate what I just said. No construction company can replicate that until they hire an alchemist back on staff and value what could be offered. Maybe that's a better way to say it. Hey, there we go, cha-ching. So, you know, talking about um, observations in the natural world and, and uh, things like that, you know, one of the things that I've always found most fascinating about some of your work, Crow, is uh, how you were able to do some geographical telescope, uh, telescopic work and looking over the sea, and you noticed that using a calculator, basically, on the telescope itself, how you were able to see further than you technically should Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that and, and how that came about and, and like, you know, were you meaning to try and be able to see further? Uh, you know, just tell me a little bit about what, what happened behind the scenes that led you to the discoveries that you made. So these are some of the hardest times that I had to go through. When I put the lunar wave up online in a very short period of time, the life I had was pretty much murdered on the sidewalk. <laughs> I had to change my phone numbers. I had to change it. It was crazy what happened. And within one month of me posting that film, the resurgence of the Flat Earth Society ideas came because people partially said, well, if we don't know this thing about the moon, which is a bit ironic because I think the, the wave is actually in the firmament. But if we don't know these very basic things and NASA won't admit that they're, that these are anything more than atmospheric disturbances, um, then what else don't we know? And they began to look. And so I was where everyone else is. What are these people on about? What, the world is flat? Um, I've heard it before, um, but I don't take people's words. So I took high-end tools out to the desert over a very long shot of water with the simple idea of, can I see further than I should, which I did. Here's the problem. I had the video. I had an account online that was relatively popular um, and the fights were just so intense um, from the people who wanted the world to be spinning and the new people who were challenging that narrative that I ended up literally deleting the video. One of the people who I worked with was so vehement that I didn't touch this and that I must have made a mistake. Uh, I was very careful in what I did. Um, and I decided at that point that not only will I not be identified with groups, any group, uh, I may offer my support or say, I appreciate what you're doing because everything should be challenged. And that's what I do now. Um, I took that evidence and I just got rid of it at the time because my life was upside down. It felt like it was never going back and I made a mistake. I should never have deleted that footage, but it could, the, the truth is it could be replicated at any time. And actually it was replicated three times um, when I did it. So it wasn't one piece of footage. It was a whole bunch of pieces of footage taken from, from different places. Um, 
which is not easy to do, by the way, particularly in the desert, because you can't do it in the heat of the day and you, you can't do it when it's too dark. You, you've got to really nail the conditions. The seeing has to be good. The humidity has to be right. The temperatures can't be, you know, wherever you do it, you've got to kind of nail the conditions. In other words, just going out on a day, um, you might not be able to, to do so much, but that's what I did. Um, and at the time that I did it, I wasn't prepared to take on the fight that was coming behind it. Well, you know, I think that that's actually the biggest thing about it because I have taken a huge amount of interest in this and I've also tried to replicate the results. And, you know, I live out here by the Bonneville salt flats. I'm about, you know, 45 minute drive away, maybe mm. drive away at most. And so um, I've taken my telescope out there and I've tried to repeat it. And what I had noticed was that every different day, every different condition, every different humidity, I'm actually able to see an entirely different distance, sometimes up to a hundred meters of, of difference. Um, and so, you know, that, that was something well, that- Well, the, the salt flats too, you're going to be dealing with other problems because of the refraction. I, I'm assuming the salt flats are white. It's like, yeah, it's like a light, a pale light sand. Um, they they yeah. do like, they're so flat. That's where they do like the world's fastest car tests and, you know, different types of things like that. And there's one huge long canal. It's really, really beautiful. It's actually an above ground aquifer uh, that feeds into the Salt Lake. And there's this beautiful blue turquoise uh, color to it. And so you can look out over water if you want to have a little more humidity or less humidity. Um, and of course, you can also stand from the side of the Bonneville Salt Flats looking out uh, either way wow. over the Great Salt Lake as well, um, uh, which would primarily be from the west side to the east side that you'd be looking out over the Great Salt Lake. Uh, and then there's mountains in the way at a certain distance. And so in some ways it creates a nice control. But then if you look from the east out west, looking over the entire length of the flats, you have entirely different conditions. So it's been a really fun place for me to play around and to be able to try and replicate the results. But the hardest thing that I'm having is consistency in yeah. the results. So, so I can address this. Um, I, I, my first thought was because the ground is such a light colored, you're going to have all kinds of reflect, refraction and radiation issues, but it doesn't matter because if you know you're varying by a hundred meters, then what you also know is when you were a hundred meters further, that was valid. All you have to do is replicate it a number of times. Um, but as you're learning, it's exactly, that's why I use the desert um, because everything is so kind of pure and clean in the desert. And I did it over a shot of water, but the first time I actually tried, I couldn't even see half the distance I was supposed to. But here's what I can offer. There's a man named Samuel Robotham who went at these problems, who inspired me to go do what I did. So I did careful planning. Um, and it took me more than once, by the way. Um, Robotham surmised because he was saying the world is not a globe and he could prove it, but he couldn't get the mainstream to pay attention and quit insulting him as a kook. So he went and got the records and physically went to 25 lighthouses. And he proved by, this, by the records and his math uh, that these lighthouses, some of them still exist, some of them do not, but the records all exist. Um, and the genius in that is I was always nautical in my youth. I've been on ships um, and you do not lie about the distance you can see a lighthouse. That's someone's life. 
if they don't know how far they're seeing the lighthouse on on fair weather on foul weather and on a medium day all these have been vetted so carefully they're, they're not fudging those numbers those lighthouses back in the day before gps was the life of a crew on a ship it could easily turn into a shipwreck if everything's not the way it's supposed to be on those maps so he he proved it now the government or the people who hated what Robotham was trying to do and calling him insane, hired a guy to come debunk him. Now the guy thought, well, this Robotham's a crazy guy, so this should be easy. Who the hell thinks the world is flat? Something wrong with his mind already. So he must have made a mathematical problem. So the guy that goes to debunk Robotham finds that his math is spot on. So he said there's some other problem, and he keeps going. He can't debunk Robotham. So the statement he makes at the end is the tell, the only tell you will ever need to hear. He said, clearly Robotham cherry picked the lighthouses. Well, I got news for you, debunker. If there's one lighthouse and it can be proven to be correct, you've got a problem. Someone is seeing too far. Robotham did it 25 times. So what we learned from this is that there is a mainstream scientific view that for whatever reason wanted us to think a different way about this reality. What it doesn't do is give us a new map. What it doesn't do is tell us what the whole world looks like. What it doesn't do is a lot of things, but it does tell you that something is burning in the kitchen and it's undeniable for an open mind that wants to go look at the work of Robotham and then do what I'm proud to hear you're doing. Get your butt out of your chair and go out and try to try to learn some things firsthand. Um, I'd be interested to hear where your salt flats go. Um, I, I love the idea of the flatness of it. And I love the idea that you're, you're contending with what I did, probably less so, because I was in a California desert. Um, and so I planned for humidity and things. Um, but you're finding that each day is so unique that what you find when you set out may be vastly different than, than what you just did a day ago or even hours ago. Yes, um, it, it, all that, tells us. That's absolutely true, Crow, even hours ago. Right. And that goes beyond humidity. Um, there could be minor temperature differences. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I'm still trying to puzzle out in my mind is where the sun might be and how there might be refraction of light off of, like we were talking about, off of some of the sand or salt crystals that are yep. sitting in the salt flats. So there, there's still a ton of variables. I'm really no nearer to getting a definitive answer than I was when I set out several years ago when, when we talked about these things. But it, it's all about experimentation and it's all about, you know, can we duplicate these results? Can we verify the results? Because uh, that's important. That's the way that things grow. Even, you know, uh, people who know about my work uh, and what I do is that I just take the evidence that exists at a, any given time and I form the most educated opinion that I can based on the evidence that exists. And if new evidence is presented to me, then I always take that into account and try and learn from that instead of sticking into some, you know, very tight concept or idea or belief about the way that things are. Uh, and I think that it's important to have malleability and flexibility about these things. So for me, I'm still deep in experimentation. I'm no nearer than I was really when I set out, but I think that they're really fun experiments, especially to, to uh, just go out and get some good time in the desert and, and uh, the salt flats are an amazing place anyway. So I'm not losing. Well, you you proved anything. something there though, Phoenix, you proved it 
such a critical, if you, I always try to boil down to the foundation to a very simple thing that I can think about and then get a foundation. What you proved is the problem with science. What you proved is why the philosophical elements of earth, air, fire, water, all they're philosophical because they mat, they are malleable. They can fit any one situation, any natural environment, and they will never or very rarely be the same. That's what you proved, which also by extension tells us what the 120, whatever fake elements science wants us to believe in. Those are not elements. Uh, those are combinations. Um, that's why the, the philosophical alchemical elements are far superior as a working model. And what you're proving in the real world is exactly why, because the world is not static. The world, there is no, maybe for some things, there is no this set of rules. Maybe an alchemist might have known a thing, well, on a day where it's hot and the barometer is up, we do it this way. Or maybe on a day when it's cold and the barometer's down, we do it this way. Or maybe when it's humid, we do it this way. That's far different than the ideas put forth in science. Yeah. Science would try to say, we control all these elements and then this is the way it works. This is the only way. But your observations are proving why the philosophical element system is superior to all other systems I'm aware of. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely operates from a level above uh, just physical density. It works on a more of a holographic and fractal archetype level. And in my opinion, and from, from my own experience, I think that that's really what is the beauty of the entire Western alchemical system and also other archetypal systems like that of the Taoists, which has been continued on through traditional Chinese medicine in the modern day. And those of uh, you know city medicine and and uh, which has been carried on largely through city still has a presence but it's mostly Ayurveda today and so on and so forth is that um, there there are archetypal systems that make the world very easy to see and and to look at in terms of qualities and they're just as relevant as to the spirit and to the soul as they are to our physicality yes. but they do have limitations so I can also see from a historical perspective how the birth of chemistry was in some ways a necessity because, you know, for instance, uh, here in my laboratory, if I start talking about the acetic acid soluble salt of salt, well, that can get very lengthy and it can also be a real pain in the ass to talk about. But if I just say potassium acetate, well, that, that makes a lot more sense. And in order to be able to even have that type of turn, they're going to have to identify all these other elements. I think what, what the, the sorrow is, is that the two traditions and the two languages didn't grow up side by side. And if they did, then there, there really isn't any sort of discrepancy because I, today I teach my students, listen, the acetate soluble salt of salt or even acetate soluble salt of sulfur, all of which are using the archetypal alchemical language. Now that actually equals potassium acetate. And here's how we can create that, purify that, blah, blah, blah. Realistically, at some point, these two sciences really meet eye to eye. It's just that they have to have dialogue, they have to have conversation, and they can't be divided the way that people are largely divided today into this either or kind of spectrum. Right. So, right. You know, I'll, I'll say another thing. See, my, my, what I suspect is going to happen is chemistry is hitting the wall, which it's doing now. So they're going to have to go back to the future. 
alchemists, which have been trying to push out from the shadows um, because they had to hide from the church way back. Um, I think we're going to come to a time when we have some very highly trained chemists that are now very highly trained alchemists. And I think that might end up being the highest levels of uh, the art for this era that we're ever going to see. And I think uh -huh. a man, I think Manfred Junius with his book Spagyric does a very good job of proving exactly what your hope is. Um, he's saying, look, um, I'm a chemist and, and I can talk the chemists talk. I can tell these chemics, chemists these chemistry things so they understand, but then I can show them why it matters in alchemy. And the thing that got lost in chemistry is the divinity of it all, yep. the perfection of nature, the truth of, of how this came to be. In other words, I can take this dead thing and I can form it into some thing that looks like a beautiful statue or I can take this living thing um, that's really kind of the crass difference that I would point into it if if your medicine wants to treat a living being doesn't the medicine itself need to be alive um, that's another thing I would point out and so I think we're headed for a time um, when we get by all this one world nonsense this big push for one world slavery and fake you know fake things to be afraid of um, that we will see more and more chemists who feel like they've hit the wall going back to get to the future. And maybe those will be some of the most powerful versions of the art that we're aware of. Who knows? I hope. You know, there's a lot of us young bucks that are playing in both realms really heavily. So I can already see the, the, the start of that entire kind of revolution already taking place. Um, and th there's some older uh, guys that I know of, like Robert Allen Bartlett, like I was talking about earlier. Manfred Junius, you know, who's no longer with us. Um, oh, did he pass away? I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah, he yes. passed away, you know, a good time ago, actually. Um, good thing he wrote that book again. So yeah. others should do these things. Yeah, well, and Robert's got two books out. He's got The Way of the Crucible. He also has uh, Real Alchemy, both of which are absolutely fantastic. I'm not sure how much Brian Cotoir knows about uh, chemistry or if he's a trained chemist, but uh, he's written very eloquently about all of these topics as well. And then, of course, uh, you know, there's there's younger guys like uh, my friend Warren from um, Evolved Alchemy is uh, his thing. He was he went to school and has a degree as a chemist. And, you know, I think he's in his late 20s, maybe early 30s right now. And he uh, he runs a, a spagyric extraction business and has been studying tons of things. Uh, Daniel Wiseman up in Canada, uh, Steve Kalik up in Canada. The, I mean, uh, most of us actually that I'm aware of here on the North American continent are just really, really, really fascinated in being able to bridge the gaps uh, between historical alchemical works and modern scientific works and to be able to see if we can take some of what was like highly superstitious or just out of the scope of awareness of alchemists in the past and be able to make things a little bit more standardized and regulated using modern sciences and understanding. And likewise, taking modern understanding of chemistry and sciences and showing what the corollary actually is to um, you know, matters of the spirit and matters of the soul and being able to show that there, everything that you do is connected by a universal thread back to what we would call the universal monad or the source of all creation. And you can't, no matter how you try, no matter what you do, you can't actually separate yourself from that. Um, it's all, it's all part of the same, same thing. And so when you're creating synthesization, 
you're no longer working within that source of creation as much as you are as trying to become that source of creation. And I think that that's where we need to kind of steer away from and get back into working with the source of creation uh, instead of trying to play creator God. There's the difference. And think about what happened to us in uh, 311, March of 2020. Um, suddenly, these powers that be wanted to convince every living soul out there to cover their spirit. Your breath is your spirit. They yeah. wanted everyone to cover their spirit and breathe exhaust fumes all day long. A hundred years ago, the number of infections, respiratory infections alone that came, this has all been done a hundred years ago, by the yep. way, people, yes. um, this, this fake, you can't touch a human being or they'll kill you. Nature's a little more perfect than that um, for everyone who's still afraid, but think about what it means to get a human being to voluntarily cover your spirit i mean the next thing behind that is you sell your soul at the crossroad or give up your i mean i don't know what comes next when you're convinced i have worn a mask a whopping 10 minutes since this started <laughs> yeah. and i have i've had some tense moments but i'm a nice guy i don't look for a fight with anyone i'm not doing it it's against my spiritual existence i will not cover up my spirit and i don't care um, if they don't want me around, even though it's not legal, fine, I'll go elsewhere. I'm not here to make you feel nervous, but I refuse to get in line with these things because alchemy and spagyrics do what they do within the scope of what is permissible by nature where there is no lie. Science has no respect currently for nature or very little. It'll break every rule and cajole and bend and break anything it can to get an outcome it's after but at the end of the day whatever's made it, it lacks a thing that that spirit it has no spirit it has no soul um that's the problem and so you know you could in my view and i don't know if you agree with me a spagyrocyst could make this thing that's supposed to be medicinal and a chemist could do it and put it in a pill so here i'm handed what the spagyrocyst did and what the, the chemically they're damn near identical as a matter of fact people would say chemical they're not the same i will not accept that they are the same because what the spagyrus made has that divine spark that spirit that living ness what the chemist made not so much yeah oftentimes uh, that's very true by just by you know people's observations like they'll take it and they'll fill an extra zing or a certain and they'll say, oh, wow, this is, this is really, really fantastic. I, I mean, that's really the bread and butter of my existence today is that if chemists were able to be making the same things that I was making or in the same way, then I, I wouldn't have a job. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's the, there's definitely uh, something different when you pour the awareness of the, the, the soul, the spirit, and the body into the thing. So it's more than just a chemical reaction that you're trying to synthesize. It's, uh, or even forced to happen, even if it's organic chemistry, you know, instead of forcing something to happen, you're allowing it to happen and observing it and having a, a dynamic relationship of observation, quantum observation with it. It, it changes the whole nature of, of everything all the way around the board. So, right. yeah. So, you know, Crow, we're, we're starting to uh, come to the end of our interview here, but I wanted to know what, what's next for you, man. Are you still planning on uh, continuing uh, with, with your interviews and, you know, do you have any plans for documentary films or other things like Shoot the Moon coming out? What's, what's new for you and what's next? 
I really want to do a film on cymatics, but right now uh, I'm trying to offer a common sense way for adults that are ready to act adult to apply to the world. Uh, I'm often so disappointed that I see a person in the world solve an issue for themselves, like I don't have to wear a mask where I am, when they could have applied that at a higher level and all their neighbors or the people immediately around them would have had a problem solved. I wanna get back to where people understand that, you know, here's an example. In the early 90s, I was in the Marine Corps during the first Gulf War, and I didn't even think for a second, oh, my country's going in and tipping over this country. I didn't stop for a second to think, um, and this is ironic because I had conversations with people where, where are you actually gonna kill someone? And I had stated, I won't kill anyone unless it's my life or, or something else, I won't do it. But it never occurred to me to question, did any of that even have a right to happen? And what we've learned since then is what can happen to them eventually can happen to us. And what that means is if you can see another human being and not understand that they're just like you, if you hurt them, they hurt, you cut them, they bleed. They want the best for their children, you want the best for your children. We need to get back together because of all this division and divisiveness that politics and fake news and all these other things have fostered. So I will keep doing what I am doing as long as I can, but I would love a chance if we back off to maybe do a film on cymatics, that would be crucially important, particularly with Jason, because he's an audio engineer and a very skilled musician. I'm a musician, just not at his level. Um, I recently, a couple of years ago, started learning mandolin, but then I got a Shiba Inu and that kind of, <laughs> I don't get over my mandolin as much as I did before I got my dog, but uh, you know, I love the dog, so I guess it's all fine. Um, <laughs> it's funny when I play my mandolin, the looks he gives me, <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that's where I'm going forward. But more than anything, anything Crow 777 related will happen at crow777radio.com. And the reason for that is, is because I'm on a private server and I privately own all that. So since I'm a respectful man, um, there's no reason for anyone to try to shut me down or have the authority to tell me I can't speak about things and exercise my divine spark and free will and, and exercise free speech. So that's that's about what I can say. Cool, man. Well, that's absolutely great. And you just mentioned people can uh, can find you and all of your work at crow777radio.com. Is there any other places that they can look for you or other things yeah. that you, you might want to let them know about? So Rose runs Crow 777 Radio on Facebook. I do have a Crow 777 Twitter, which I don't communicate. I just post things like, we just did this. You can go here to see this. And then the same is now true of YouTube. Uh, I am permanently stuck at 185,000 people. They deleted my channel, by the way, in the fall of 2017 for a lunar wave clip, by the way. Um, and since that time, if you search on a Google tool, instead of the 25 or 6 million returns on my name, you get 2000. And that happened when they deleted my account. So I am leaving behind these things in, in deference and honor to the people who took the time to follow me. I will not close them. I will always use them as notification centers to let folks know what I'm doing, um, to try to honor, uh, the time they took to follow me. That's great. That's absolutely fantastic. Well, 
That's cool. Do you have any final thoughts or anything else that you'd like to share? Uh, you know, I know that one of your your favorite mottos is something that uh, I love, which is uh, belief is the enemy of knowing. Do you have any other uh, little quips or ideas that you'd like to leave our, our listeners with today? And the most important thing, if you can be convinced by a black box called TV or any other source that there's these people that live across the world that just want to blow themselves up, and go get 72 versions or any version of these other weird people that aren't even quite human on the other side of the world, you've got a lot of growing up to do. Those are human beings just like you. They have the divine spark just like you. They have free will, some less than others, just like you. And until we get back to honoring the fact that we're all here to do the same thing, uh, we have to go through these cycles of hardship and necessity in this world for an outcome but as long as we marginalize and treat badly one another, then we're just harming ourselves. What was done in Iraq when I was a Marine is now being done in the US in a slightly different way. Um, but I've grown up, I won't stand for it anymore. And I will recognize every living man and woman as special and important. And I will help them if I can. Freaking brilliant, man. Crow, again, I wanna thank you so much for coming on today. It's been a real pleasure. Hey, thanks so much, man. I guess uh, since we're closing, I'd like to wish everybody a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Awesome. Well, and I'm sure that uh, everybody's going to wish that right back to you. Again, this has been Crow from crow777radio.com. I've been your host, Phoenix Aurelius. Thank you for joining us for this Alchemiculture podcast. And uh, please stay tuned for our next podcast, which will launch here in a couple of weeks, where we release some more alchemically inspired types of content. Thank you again for listening. Have a great day.